This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Good evening. My name is Tayari Jones, and it is my honor and pleasure to introduce Richard Powers. He is a gorgeous and insightful novelist, a brave and meticulous essayist, and he is an excellent person. (laughs) In the spirit of disclosure, I will contextualize my remarks by telling you that Richard is one of my dearest friends. And since I know him, I'm aware that he does not sit comfortably as his many accolades are recounted. So as his friend, I will keep this portion of the introduction brief. Richard Powers is one of our most gifted and decorated novelists. He is the author of 12 novels, including The Prisoner's Dilemma, The Goldbug Variations, The Echo Maker, In the Time of Our Singing, and of course, the work we celebrate today, The Overstory. He has won a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Book Award. His work has been selected 10 times as New York, New York Times Notable Books. His work has been translated into dozens of languages, and he has received numerous literary recognitions overseas. Powers is known for the colossal scope of his work, both breadth and depth. His range is vast because his curiosity and expertise are equally prodigious. Richard Powers is classically trained as a musician. He worked toward a degree in physics. He is a scholar of literature, and he is also skilled in the composition of computer code. Such a mind produces fiction that riffs on Bach, winks at Poe, and in pondering our genetic code, looks to God with questions in his eyes. Recently, the Smithsonian Museum acquired the ensemble that African-American contralto Marian Anderson wore for her iconic performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. In 1939, the Daughters of the American Revolution denied Ms. Anderson permission to sing in Constitution Hall, so she performed an open-air concert for a crowd of 75,000 people. Fans of Richard Powers were recalled at this moment, marking the triumph of art and music over hatred and fear, figures prominently in his eighth novel, and my favorite, In the Time of Our Singing. So imagine my delight a few weeks ago when I discovered a photo of Marian Anderson's vibrant orange silk jacket. I texted it to Rick, wondering whether or not someone would colorize the famous image of Anderson raising her voice before a bank of microphones. Rick texted back that maybe they would colorize the image, but he wondered if seeing a color photo would change the way we remembered that moment. After all, the stark black and white image is seared into our memory. And I thought about this for a long time, but I realized that Rick had already colorized the moment for us with his exquisite rendering of that Easter Sunday concert and the complicated story of race and love and family that grew from the seed of that moment. This is what Rick does in all of his work. In all 12 novels, he makes ideas real. He turns words on a page, which are just really black marking on white paper. From this, he creates a human landscape teeming with ideas, yes. Anyone who knows even a little bit about his work knows that he is a writer obsessed with the whys and hows of things. But he is also an artist of great heart, and he wants to know who we are and who we are to each other. With his latest work, The Overstory, Powers gives us a novel that is at once an origin story, a cautionary tale, and a call to arms. 
The short version is that The Overstory is a book about trees. And yes, it is, yet it's more than that, just as trees themselves are plants, but they're also witnesses to and vital participants in the history of our planet. In the author's own words, quote, this is not our world with trees in it. It's a world of trees where humans have just arrived. He also reminds us that you and the tree in your backyard come from a common ancestor. A billion and a half years ago, you parted ways. But even now, after an, after an immense journey in separate directions, that tree and you still share a quarter of your genes. So the overstory is a family saga and a love story, painful and beautiful as only love and family can be. And it is a story of a connection that burrows below us like roots and stretches toward the heavens like branches. If you believe, as I do, that the purpose of literature is to explain ourselves to ourselves, then you will understand why I am so grateful that Rick lives among us, setting his mind and spirit to the task of fiction. And it is with this gratitude shot through with great pleasure that I present to you Mr. Richard Powers, an American treasure and my very dear friend. Thank you, beloved friend. I, I texted Tiari a couple days ago. I said, if, if 10 equals black tie and one equals cutoffs with University of Illinois t-shirts, what are we aiming for tonight? <laughs> she wrote back the shortest text I've ever received, seven. <laughs> Which was immediately followed by another text, iron. <laughs> I tried to explain to her that it's tough for me to get up to a seven. I should have known that she would unilaterally escalate to a nine. <laughs> Here we are. Lennon had asked for, for 45 from me and 25 from the conversation since I get so little time these days with TJ, I just thought I'd shift it to a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll read a passage. It takes about 20 minutes with a short introduction, and that'll give us a little more uh, leisure to be on stage together, which is why I said yes to this event. <laughs> so a little background on where this book came from. And if what I'm about to tell you sounds like a conversion narrative, uh, it's because it is. Um, I reached the ripe old age of 55 as tree-blind as anyone. I, I liked them. I, I could appreciate spectacular ones, but I couldn't tell an ash from an elm, and, you know, there just were a whole lot of maples out there. You know, just everything was a maple. And I, I, you know, it's funny because I lived for a long time in the Midwest, and I moved to Bangkok, and then I lived on the East Coast, and then I lived in the Netherlands. So, you know, many, many opportunities to, to be struck by these stunning, long-lived, and extremely resourceful and varied companions, and just nothing clicked. And it took being hit over the head with a very large, 
very blunt instrument, namely a, a coastal redwood, for me to have my eyes opened. And, and it, it, the, the story is this. I, I retired from Illinois after many years of teaching, where, where, where Tiari and I were colleagues. And I moved to Stanford. And for those of you who have been, it's a, it's a very strange and wonderful place in a very strange and staggering part of the country, part of the world, really. I mean, it's in the heart of Silicon Valley. And, you know, created by this robber baron you know, who made his fortune built finishing the, the, intercon- the transcontinental railroad. And... From my house, I think I could bike within 15 minutes to the headquarters of Google, Apple, Intel, HP, Facebook, Netflix, you know, all, all of the makers of the present world were just down the street. And all of the makers of the future world, they were, they were busily creating a future that is almost ecstatic or euphoric in, in, in the conversation of the area. It was very difficult to go to a dinner party that wasn't either about the latest $1.7 million teardown uh, or about how we were all going to live forever if we could just hold out a little bit longer. You know, there was going to be some technological fix. And that's, that's a, a little bit oppressive after a while. And when the future got too rosy, I had a nice getaway to, to, the, to the long past, which is the Santa Cruz Mountains just behind town. And there, through the vision of lots of people, including Wallace Stegner, um, there is a tremendous amount of set-aside land up on the top of these mountains. You could actually walk from San Francisco to San Jose pretty much in, on, in public land or private set-aside land. Um, Walking became my passion in, in that year, that first year at Stanford. If you have walked in a redwood forest of any age, uh, and it's hard not to, 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 to lapse into theological discourse. You know, it's like being in the biggest, most beautiful cathedral you can imagine. And what I didn't really know, walking under these staggering trees that change your entire sense of, of proportion and time is that I was actually walking through second growth forest. And this came clear to me one day when I was up near Skyline and came across an escapee, an individual that had somehow managed to evade the, the saw. You know, uh, a redwood can do a lot in a hundred years. I mean, it's it's really a fast-growing, magnificent, breathtaking tree at at, at the age of a hundred. When you let it go twelve hundred or fifteen hundred, it's it, it it changes the way you see life. I mean, I'm talking about a tree that was maybe just a little shy of the width of the of the central set of seats, and that went up. You know, as, as, as into the air, you know, straight up as as long as a football field is wide, and was, you know, almost as old as Jesus. And even I knew that I had to rethink what life wanted and how it went about getting it. The first thing that 
really struck me was that this mountain range would have been covered in trees that size, you know, before we got to them. And we got to them to build San Francisco and then rebuild it and to build Stanford and to build that railroad. And it occurred to me, you know, in, in that, in the moments after seeing this, this spectacular godlike creature, that Silicon Valley was down there because these trees were up here. And there was a relationship between trees and people that I had never been conscious of before and, and whose story I had never seen told, certainly not in fiction. And yet here I was, you know, 11 books in and 33 years in, into this craft, wanting to tell the story of who we are and how we got here and just belatedly having the lights click on and come to this realization that I did not know in whose debt we were. And I thought that's a story I'd like to see. And the, 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 that initial kind of road to Damascus moment, it was, very, you know, it was very memorable and transformative, but it was really coming down from those mountains and starting to read and, and coming across st- staggering things like uh, that, these, that these trees, 98% of them had been cut. 98% of the original forest had been cut, which incidentally is very close to the figure for primary forest, old growth forest in the United States as a whole. That it simply was almost impossible to see what a forest looked like before we got to them. And that was eye-opening. And, and then, you know, the more I read, the, you know, to, 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 to hear that as recently, you know, from that moment when I saw the, the, this last kind of holdout up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, that it had only been a matter of a decade and a half, you know, since the, 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 the showdown to save the last few remnants of these trees. That was stunning to me, too. So, you know, the deeper in I got, the more the world changed. And, you know, I just, I just got back, I, I got to the point where I was seeing things in the non-human world that I had walked blithely by, and as a result, I was seeing who we were and what we were up to in a very different light. And that's what prompted the birth of this book. Initially, I thought, you know, I'd like to write a book that fictionalized the world from a tree's point of view. And then I thought, that means having a character that's several centuries old who never moves. <laughs> there was a certain technical challenge to that, to making the, that, that rising dramatic arc, you know, the tension arc of a good novel. Um, and then I, I realized, too, that that wasn't what I was most interested in doing. What I was most interested in doing was telling a story that somehow found a fictional form for the fact that there is no separate thing called nature and no separate thing called people. And to, to, to cast this story so that it had nine human protagonists, very different walks of life, very different stories and personalities, who, like me, 
come to this moment where they have to think about themselves differently and their world differently because of these other protagonists who are also in the story with them who want different things and who need different things and whose relationship to the, this place is so profoundly different than our own. So that's uh, a little background. And you know, when, when I did return to, to, to the East, all everything that I had grown up with looked different to me. And maybe, maybe we'll talk about this later. The book actually literally changed my life. It changed where I live. It changed how I spend my days. And nevertheless, while I was working on this book over the period of you know, five, five and a half years, when I told friends, when they said, what are you working on now? And I gave them the answer that Tiari just gave you. Their, my friend's reaction was much like your reaction was when Tiari announced, this, was, this is a book about trees. You know, I would say it, and you would see the eyebrows go up, and, you know, that, oh, you're writing a nonfiction book? No, I'm writing a novel about trees. And then that moment of, well, you know, I hope you know what you're doing. (laughs) The deeper I got into it, the less strange it seemed, and the more it seemed to me that it's hard now for me to think of any novel that opens up the full human drama that doesn't put the non-human front and center, or at least as an active, collaborative presence. So a a little background on the section that I'm going to read. A lot of the book is based on a thinly veiled historical event. And uh, some of you may remember the events of Redwood Summer, uh, uh, Pacific Lumber, uh, the Hurwitz Maxim story of trying to save the last few uh, patches of, of redwood in Northern California. And non-political people uh, having their consciousness changed uh, in much the way that, you know, that other books might uh, have told historical stories of other kind of consciousness-raising events uh, in, in American history. Um, in the section that I'm going to read... Uh, two people who have never done anything confrontatory in public before have come to California to take part in this active uh, protest that involved that involves bodily confrontation with the forces that want to take these trees. Um, the the one is a uh, college dropout, actuarial science major, bad girl, uh, who accidentally electrocutes herself uh, while she's uh, severely incapacitated, um, comes back from that near-death experience hearing voices, has a calling. And uh, uh, the, the other protagonist is a slightly older male, uh, who has graduated from art school, who's ended up a kind of hermit, uh, who is swept up in this woman's orbit, and she drags him out to California for his first ever political confrontation. And um, I'm going to read the story in which they uh, take part in their first ever tree sit. Uh, you can't cut a tree down if there are human beings up there, because remember, human beings are sacred. And uh, this 1,500-year tree that's 20, 
five feet wide is not. Um, so uh, the only tricky thing about establishing this passage uh, is that you know a lot of a lot of activists in this time period would take on forest names, and they did it for a variety of reasons. One of the one of the reasons is you know if you get caught, you can't identify anybody except by calling you know by this goofy label that they that they took on. Um, so uh, Olivia becomes Maidenhair, and Nick becomes Watchman. And I just say that because, you know, without that background, it, it may sound like a bridge game, and it's actually just a cribbage game. They're, they're, you know, once the action gets underway, there are only two of them up there, although they go by four different names. They slog the last few hundred yards up the rut. Maidenhair, Watchman, and their guide, Loki, who has run ground support for this tree for weeks. A profile emerges out of the thicket, so huge it can't be right. There it is, Loki says. There's Mimas. Sounds come up and out of Nick's mouth. Syllables that mean loosely, Oh, my hopeless Jesus. He has seen monster trees for weeks, but never one like this. Mimas, wider across than his great-great-grandfather's old farmhouse. It runs straight up like a chimney butte and neglects to stop. Twenty-five feet above ground, a secondary trunk springs out of the expanse of flank. A branch as big as any eastern tree. Two more trunks flare out higher up the main shaft. Watchman humps up to where Maidenhair stands gazing. Even in the falling light, her face glows with cause. All the agitation has drained away, replaced by a certainty as pure and painful as an owl's call. Her face tilts up the titanic trunk. I can't believe there's no other way to protect this thing except with our bodies. Loki says, if nobody's losing money or getting hurt, the law doesn't give a fuck. The base of the tree, between two enormous burls, opens onto a goose pen large enough to sleep all three of them tonight. Soot marks run up the trunk, the scars of fires that burned before there was an America. And from high up in the tangled mass, vanishingly far above ground, come the cheers of two exhausted people out of their element who just want to be dry and warm and safe again tonight for a few hours. Something tumbles down from above. A rope dangles in the air, the width of Watchman's index finger, in front of a shaft wider than his field of view. What do we do with this? Attach the packs? Loki chuckles. You climb it. He produces a harness, loops of knotted rope and carabiners. He starts to put the belt around Watchman's waist. Hang on. Are these staples? There's been some wear. Don't worry. The staples and duct tape won't bear your weight. No, this little shoestring will bear my weight. 
Olivia steps between the bickering men and pulls the harness around her own waist. Loki clamps her in with carabiners. He cables her to the climbing rope with two sliding prussic knots, one for her chest and the other for a foot stirrup. Stand up on the stirrup, push the chest knot as high as you can, lean back and let it take your weight. Sit back into the harness, slip the stirrup knot as high as it'll go, then stand up on that. Repeat. Maidenhair laughs like an inchworm. She stands up. She leans back and sits. She stands in inches again, climbing a ladder of air, hoisting herself in self-raising footholds off the face of the earth. Watchman stands underneath as she scoots into the sky. The intimacy, her body writhing above him, makes his whole soul flush. She's a natural, Loki says. She'll reach the top in 20 minutes. She does, though every muscle in her is shaking by arrival. From above, cheers greet her summit. Down at ground level, jealousy seizes Nick, and when the harness drops again, he springs into it. He gets about a hundred feet into the air before freaking. The rope can't possibly hold him. It's twisting and making weird nylon groans. He cranes his neck to see how much farther. Forever. Then he makes the mistake of looking down. Loki twirls in slow circles below. Nick's muscles surrender to panic. He closes his eyes and whispers, I can't do this. I'm dead. He feels the zoom, the endless drop, coursing through his legs. Two small lumps of vomit come up his throat and onto his windbreaker. But Olivia is talking up close into his ear. Nick, you've done this already. I've seen it for weeks. A hand, she says, a foot, sit, slide the knot, stand. He opens his eyes onto the trunk of Mimas, the largest, strongest, widest, oldest, surest, sanest living thing he has ever seen. Keeper of half a million days and nights, and it wants him in its crown. Shouts greet him at the top. Those above him fasten him with clamps into the tree. Olivia scampers about the platforms along a rope ladder. Buzzard and Sparks have long since talked her through every clause in the lease. They want only to be gone before night traps them. They climb down the rope to Loki, who calls up through the encroaching dark. Someone will be by with your replacements in a few days. All you need to do until then is stay aloft. Then Nick is alone with this woman who has commandeered his life. She takes his hand, which still has not unkinked from gripping. Nick, we're here in Mimas. She speaks the creature's name like she's been talking with it for a long time. They sit next to each other in needle-grazed darkness, 200 feet in the air, on what Buzzard and Sparks called the Grand Ballroom, 
a seven-by-nine-foot platform made of three doors bolted together. Sliding tarp walls shelter them on three sides. Bigger than my room at college, Olivia says. Nicer. Balanced on another branch just beneath is a small piece of plywood. A rain barrel, collecting jar, and sealable bucket complete the bathroom. Six feet above them on a higher spur, another platform serves as pantry, kitchen, and den. It's filled with water, food, tarps, and supplies. A hammock stretched between two limbs cradles a substantial lending library, left here by previous sitters. The whole three-level treehouse balances on the top of an enormous fork made when the trunk was hit by lightning centuries ago. It sways with every breeze. A kerosene lamp illuminates her face. He has never seen her look so confirmed. Come here. She takes his wrist and guides him to her. Here. Closer. As if farther away were an option. And she takes him like someone who's sure that life has need of her. In the night, something warm grazes his face. Her hand, he thinks, or the fall of her hair as she leans over him. Even the slow, seasick barker roll of the sleeping bag bed feels blessed. The cramped quarters of love. A claw cuts into his cheek, and the succubus lets loose with falsetto gibbers. Watchman bolts up, screaming, shit! He pitches toward the platform edge, stopped by his safety cable. One palm punches through the fantasy of tarp walls. Lives go shrieking off into the branches. She's up in a flash, pinning his arms. Nick, stop. Nick, it's okay. In the hail of chatter, he's slow to hear what she keeps saying. Flying squirrels. They've been playing all over us for ten minutes. Christ, why? She laughs and pulls him back down horizontal. You'll just have to ask them if they ever come back. She nuzzles him, her belly in the small of his back. Sleep won't come. There are creatures that live so high up and so far away from man that they never learned fear. And thanks to the humanity in his cells, Nick has this very first night of his very first tree sit taught them. Light gathers in speckled fistfuls on his face. He has slept almost not at all, but rises refreshed in a way normally reserved for the industrious. He rolls onto his side and lifts the tarp. The whole spectrum streams in from blues to browns, greens to absurd golds. Look at that. Let's see. Her logy voice breathes in his ear. Oh, goodness. They look together, high-wire surveyors of a newfound land. Cloud, mountain, world tree, and mist. All the tangled, rich stability of creation leaves him stupid with silence. 
Reiterated trunks grow out of Mimas's main line, shooting up like parallel, shooting up parallel like the fingers of a Buddha's upraised hand, recouping the mother tree on smaller scales, repeating the inborn shape again and again, their branches running into each other, too mazy and fused to trace. Fog coats the canopy. Through an opening in Mimas's crown, the tufted spires of nearby trunks stand swirled in a phantasmagoric Ordovician fairy tale. It's morning, like the morning when life first came up onto dry land. Nick sweeps back another wall of tarp along its rope runner. Dozens more feet of mimas unfold above, trunks that took over when lightning clipped this one. The top of the tangled system disappears into low cloud. Fungi and lichens everywhere, like splatters of paint from a heavenly can. He and Maidenhair perch most of the way up the flat iron building. Below, the floor of the forest is a dollscape a little girl might make out of acorns and ferns. His legs go cold with thoughts of plummeting. He lowers the tarp. She's staring at him, madness in her hazel eyes that spills out as cackling. We're here. We made it. This is where they want us. Here and there, solo spires rise above the giant's chorus. They look like green thunderheads or rocket plumes. Only now, 70 yards above the ground, can Nicholas gauge the true size of these few old ones five times larger than the largest whale. In the middle distance, the forest broadens into denser, deeper blue. On every side, trees lap at the low, wet sky, the clouds they themselves have helped to seed. Skeins of aerial needles sip the fog banks, condensing water vapor and sieving it down the sluices of twigs and branches. The land unfolds, ridge beyond ridge. His eyes adjust to the Baroque abundance. Forests of five different shades bathe in the mist, each one a biome to creatures still to be discovered. And every tree he looks on belongs to a Texas financier who has never seen a redwood, but means to gut them all to pay off the debt he took on to acquire them. A shift in the warmth next to him reminds Watchman he's not the only large vertebrate in this roost. If I don't quit looking, my bladder's going to burst. Olivia scrambles down the rope ladder to the platform below. He thinks, I really should look away. But he's living in a tree 200 feet above the surface of the planet. Flying squirrels have surveilled his face. Fogs from the world's infancy turn the clock back eons, and he feels himself becoming another species. She squats above the wide-mouthed jar, and a stream rushes out of her. He has never seen a woman urinate. Something a fair number of American males who've ever lived will have to say on their deathbeds. (laughs) 
the ritual concealment suddenly seems like some strange animal behavior that might turn up on a BBC wildlife documentary. (laughs) He hears that received pronunciation whispering off camera. When removed from their kind, individual human beings can change in remarkable ways. When she's done, she tips the jar over the side of the platform. The wind takes the liquid and disperses it. Twenty feet and her waist atomizes into the fog. Needles will rework it into something alive again. My turn, he says, when she comes back. And then, from above, she watches him crouch into the bag-lined bucket, which will go to Loki for removal and compost when he shows up next. They take breakfast al fresco. Their chill fingers feed hazelnuts and dried apricots into mouths that hang open, awed by the view. Sitting still and looking. Their new job description. But they're humans, and soon enough, she says, let's explore. The main trails from the grand ballroom are laid out with loops and lobster claws, rope ladders, places to hook a carabine or two. She gives him the harness. Then she makes one for herself from three nylon climbing cables. He wobbles out onto a waving branch. The wind blows, and Mimas's entire crown dips and bucks. He'll die, plunge 20 stories down into a bed of ferns. But he's getting used to the idea. There are worse ways to go. They head off in different directions. He inches along one barrel-sized limb, cabled in, scooting on his pants seat. The scraped branch smells of lemons. One twig holds a shock of cones, each smaller than a marble. He takes one and taps it into his open palm. Seeds fall out like coarsely ground pepper stuck in the crease of his lifeline. From such a speck came a tree that holds him 200 feet in the air without flexing. This fortress tower that could sleep a village and still have room to let. From high above, she calls out, Huckleberries, a whole patch of them up here. Bug swarm, iridescent party-colored minuscule horror film monsters. He works his way to a strange junction. Two large beams over the course of centuries have flowed together like modeling clay. He grapples to the top of the hillock and finds it hollow. Inside is a small lake. Plants grow along a pond flecked with tiny crustaceans. Something moves in the shallows, speckled all over in chestnut, bronze, black, and yellow. Seconds pass before Nick coughs up a name. Salamander. How did a damp-seeking creature with inch-long limbs climb two-thirds of the length of a football field up the side of fibrous bark? The only plausible explanation is that his ancestors got on board a thousand years ago and rode the elevator up for 500 generations. Nick edges himself back the way he came. He's propped up in the corner of the grand ballroom when Maidenhair returns. She's ditched the safety umbilical. 
You'll never believe what I found. A six-foot hemlock growing in a mat of soil this deep. Jesus, Olivia, were you free climbing? Oh, don't worry. I climbed a lot of trees when I was little. She kisses him, a quick, preemptive strike. And you know, Mima says he won't let us fall. He sketches her as she copies her morning discoveries into a spiral notebook. The drill of solitude comes so much easier to him than to her. After years of camping in an Iowa farmhouse, a day at the top of this Leviathan flagpole is like stepping out. She, though, in her core, in her core chemistry, is still a college girl, addicted to a rate of stimulations per second that she hasn't entirely kicked. The fog burns off. Deep in the expanse of midday, she asks, What time would you say it is? Her question is more mystified than agitated. The sun hasn't passed overhead, and yet the two of them are worlds older than they were this time yesterday. He looks up from sketching the local labyrinths of Mimas' limbs and shrugs. She giggles. Okay, what day? Soon enough, an afternoon, half an hour, a minute, all feel the same size. Just crossing the nine-foot platform is a national epic. More time passes, a tenth of an eternity, two-tenths. When she speaks again, the softness shatters him. I never knew how strong a drug other people are. The strongest, or at least the most widely abused. How long does it take to detox? He considers. Nobody's ever clean. In the hammock library, she finds a book, The Secret Forest. Would you like me to read to you? She reads like she's in the front of the assembled class, reciting that long freight train of stanzas from Leaves of Grass that the entire 10th grade was assigned to memorize. You and the tree in your backyard come from a common ancestor. She stops and looks out the transparent wall of their treehouse. A billion and a half years ago, the two of you parted ways. She pauses again, as if to do the math. But even now, after an immense journey in separate directions, that tree and you still share a quarter of your genes. Tacking into the breeze of the author's thought, they make their way through four full pages before the light starts to fail. They eat again by candlelight, instant soup mix floating on two cups of water warmed on the tiny camp stove. By the time they're done, darkness rules, filled with the thousand spectral challenges of night that they cannot decode. We should save the candles, she says. It's hours before bedtime. They lie on the long, rocking platform of their pledge, chattering to each other in the dark. Up here, they face no dangers but the oldest one. When the wind blows, it feels like they're crossing the Pacific on a makeshift raft. When the wind stops, 
The stillness suspends them between two eternities, in the caress of here and now. In the dark, she asks, What are you thinking? He's thinking that his life has reached its zenith this very day, that he has lived to see everything he wants, lived to see himself happy. I was thinking it's going to be cold again tonight. We may need to zip the bags together. I'm down with that. Every star in the galaxy rolls out above them through the blue-black needles in a river of spilled milk. The night sky, the best drug there was before people came together into something stronger. They zip the bags together. You know, she says, if one of us falls, the other's going with. I'll follow you anywhere. They wake before the light to the sound of chainsaws in the deep beneath them. Thank you. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Shall we start? You got to do all the heavy lifting here. <laughs> Well, I want to say, I'm going to ask you the question people always ask writers. I know that you have moved to the Smoky Mountains, and you more or less live in a forest. So when I was reading the overstory, I had to ask, are any of these trees real people? (laughs) That was a great start. Um, Well, what do do we say when they say it about characters? Um, Well... It's a composite. These these trees are hybrids, let's call it that, right? (laughs) it's funny. I mean, I, I do, you know, Mimas, for instance, is a kind of recreation of my, of my Methuselah tree up on, up on Skyline that I talked about in the intro. And then there are others, you know, the, the chestnut tree that's planted way out of the native range in Iowa and grows up with this native family. That's based on, on an experience, you know, on a, on a cultivated tree way out of its uh, range that actually survives the chestnut bite because it's so, so far out. Um, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, and you know, we, when we were first, when I was first starting out on mine, you were first starting out on American Marriage, about the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they came out about the same time. So I, early on, you know, it was like, how do I make them into characters, you know, and how do I give them that same degree of palpability that the humans are going to have? So when you did that, I mean, you do anthropomorphize the trees. Yeah, and, and I, I, don't, I don't apologize for that in a way because in some ways that prohibition against anthropomorphizing natural things that science uses to kind of keep itself objective and, and independent, it's, it, it's almost gone too far. It, there, there are ways in which that prohibition against anthropomorphizing has made it very difficult for us to see that we are continuous, Genetically, with the rest, I mean, it's just a. I mean, think of this: when I was when I was in school, I I remember sitting in psychology class and the and and the professor saying, "No, you know, um, chimpanzees and great apes, they're not conscious." And that was that was a status. That wasn't this one outlier guy. I mean, that's that was 
kind of consensual wisdom at the time. That prohibition against anthropomorphizing, saying, look, they look like they're having emotions. They look like they're, you know, planning things. Why, why is that so hard for us to get? It, there's something about this human exceptionalism thing that's made it really, really tough for, you know, for us to say, there's a, there's a story there that's right next to our story. I mean, it's true. I mean, this is random, but my, um, the vet told me that, I, that my cat is not jealous. And my cat is jealous. You know your cat yes. is jealous. I mean, look, you know. And my cat plots revenge. <laughs> but when I read With- the overstory, I was thinking that perhaps, you know, that I, I, perhaps I do feel my cat, her name is Canella. Maybe I feel like Canella is exceptional, but it made me think that, you know, you're doing kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, with. Yeah. With vegetation, with wildlife. Yeah. And interestingly, that same scientific prohibition against seeing complex agency or volitional behavior or surprise collaborative or social behavior on the part of plants made these discoveries that have been unfurling over the last 30 or 40 years so belated. I mean, there was nothing that a botanist in 1850 couldn't have... You know, well, I guess there there were some things, but to to in the last forty years, for these people to come out and say, as as one of my characters does and is persecuted for it, that, for instance, an an acacia tree that's being nibbled on by an herbivore in West Africa. You know, we know that it starts, you know, after, after, after a while, it starts to put out chemicals to make itself unpalatable to that herbivore, and the herbivore has to push on. But now, when the researcher says, it's also putting out distress signals over the air, and the nearby acacias are getting that signal and starting to preemptively produce those same chemicals to make them unpalatable. Wow. You mean they're sharing an immune system? Only to those who are willing to, you know, to anthropomorphize just a little bit in order to see what's happening out there. Um, and well, don't you think this also allows you to use the novel as a form to to talk about this? Because yeah. you know, people like to read novels about people, or yeah, and yeah. in this case, a novel about trees that seem kind of—is there a word peopley? Peopley. <laughs> right. There is now. I mean, but why do you think? I mean, this is your 12th novel, and this novel has enjoyed a lot of what I guess I'll call, you know, mainstream readership. Why, what do you think about this moment has caused this book, of all your books, that I think that, you know, like when I said it's a book about trees, it makes people chuckle, yeah, yeah. yet this is your most popular work. Yeah. To what do you attribute this? I think you just have to live to 60 to have your breakout. Well, actually, <laughs> you beat this by a couple decades, but, yeah. No, um... So let me go back to this original question. So the first part of the question, uh, and remind me. <laughs> why this book? Why here? Why now? Yeah. No, I mean, there, there was something before that. Books, people like books about people? Yeah, it had to These do with the, the, literary, the literary bias toward things that look like us. I'm going to 
say not even literary. I think just the day-to-day bias. I mean, like when people describe someone as a a tree hugger, for example, it's a joke. It's a sense. People feel that it's something that is detached from what we think is important. They've they've somehow ridiculously extended their powers of empathy into a place where it shouldn't exist. Right. Like when people say that people are into trees, yeah, it makes it sound like they're not into people or they're not, that they don't have other things to think about. It seems like they're making something urgent that isn't urgent. Is that because trees are so slow to grow? Like, what is that? There's a a moment in this book where the the woman who grows up to be this kind of transgressive botanist, dendrologist, is being schooled by her father. She's a little girl. She had a kind of belatedly diagnosed hearing deficit. And as a result, her speech was also difficult to understand, and she's ostracized by her classmates and so forth. And, and she finds in the plant world a kind of affinity that she can't find in the human world. It helps that her father's also an extension agent and, and takes her on his trips with her and starts to teach her all these things. And she says, you know, at school, Dad, you know, it's like my classmates can't tell the difference between a shag bark and a pig nut hickory. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> so, and he says, you know, it's, it's funny, but we, we only perk up when the thing looks like us. And that has a lot to do with long adaptation, right? The reason we have big brains is we're social creatures and we need to keep track of each other and we need to know who owes us favors and who we owe favors to, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. The... the the things that attract us move at about the speed that we do. They're about the size that we are. Other adaptations, you know, we learn to look out for predators and so forth and what's good to eat. But this thing that unfolds on mind-boggling time frames on a scale that we just can't put together. How do we? How, it's, it's amazing that anybody gets empathy enough to, to take them seriously. But, you know, I think about this moment we're in where, where the climate is right. under siege, the earth is under siege, right. and it makes a story like this seem more urgent, but also we're in a particular political moment where a lot of people are under siege, you know, at the you same time. You want to use the T word, don't you? Which... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, no, and that, that's... Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel... But I do feel like we're in this, in this political climate where, you know, the, um, the EPA is, is done, right? Like, it's just, it's open season on the environment. Right. And it does seem like the book, a book like yours, is more urgent than ever. But then there's also this sense that with all the other things we're seeing politically, that it, sometimes when I, I've talked to people about the premise of this book, before they've read it, but just hearing about it, they feel like we, we are not in a tree moment yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm not into trees. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, this is an interesting thing. So back in the day, when I, when I did used to teach, my poor undergraduates had to hear this taxonomy about conflict. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, um, we've talked about related things, too. The, the kite flies against the wind, doesn't fly with the wind. You have, to, you have to stack the deck against what your characters want, right? You ha- there has to be some kind of conflict. So where can that conflict come from? And... It's a very simple taxonomy, but I think it includes most possibilities. Whenever we have an internal value, it immediately sets up an inverse value that's going to cause problems 
for that person. So if I say, you know, I, you know, I love you dearly and I'm going to be loyal to you for the rest of my life, and, you know, the, the novelist starts to say, okay, what's, what's the problem going to be? And the problem is that someday Rick is going to have to choose between honesty and loyalty. Really? <laughs> we can talk about this later, but no. Um, so there's, you know, that, think, of, think of how many books are set up on this thing. You know, where it's like, do I tell them now and risk the friendship, or do I, you know, do I look the other way? And then they're going to find out later and say, why the hell didn't you tell me? So, so that's interior conflict is, is our, our bread and butter, right? I mean, that's eight-tenths of literary fiction. Now, the le- next level is I have completely defensible and, and honorable and sympathetic values. And the, the, the readers are looking, you know, are seeing me go to town. And they say, there's a good guy. And he's doing the best he can, more or less, more or less. <laughs> and, and you are doing the same, Right. And I, but you know, whatever my set of values is, and you can, you can set it up, you have great, there's an incredible moment in American marriage. And in the full context, maybe we don't need the whole thing, but, you know, Celeste and Roy, you know, trying to work this out, Celeste and Roy. And, you know, she's saying, you know, I'm out here and you have no idea how, comp-. and he's saying, I'm in here. And, you know, and she's saying, there's a, you know, what? What do you want me to do? And he says, I'm innocent. And she says, I'm innocent too. I'm innocent too. That is a chilling moment. And it's the, the, it's the perfect exemplum of this kind of dialogical, morally distributed you know, no, novel. Where, you know, your readers probably come up to you sometimes and say, well, who's right? Mm-hmm. And you're saying that problem is left up to the reader as an exercise, right? I mean, the, the reality is both of those positions are deeply sympathetic and, and true. So that's, I mean, the, the thing that powers that book is that it now graduates from the, a private psychological drama to a political drama. She's in there because his country's messed up. And she has to pay the price for him. Who's asking her to do? Why should she? So that's the perfect example of incommensurable values between decent people, right? So you have you have a person against his or herself, and you have a good person against another person. There is a third level of drama, and it used to be all over literature. In fact, most world literature, for most of the history of literature knew about this third level of drama, which is that the living world sees things differently than Homo sapiens sees. That there are conditions for living here that aren't palatable to us. And we're struggling to figure out how to stay here. And I think what happened to literary fiction is, you know, around about three-quarters of the way through the, the 19th century, that battle was over. Or so we thought. You know, that, that somehow the, the, the battle between people and the beyond people or, you know, the, the, the non-people, that we, we, there was a, that it was over and there was only one species standing. And we were in charge and, 
Everybody else was there, as the Bible says, you know, to, to have dominion over. And, and, and so that third kind of conflict, you know, psychological, political, or socio- sociopolitical, now environmental, that disappears and becomes kind of archaic. You could do it as a kind of fake Jack London-y thing, you know, in a nostalgic way. But see, now your question about what's happening now, we now know that we did not win that battle. And not only didn't we win it, but we're losing it spectacularly. But now that, that's got to come back into our stories. Yeah, but there isn't there. There's a sense of urgency. I, I mean, I, I think we all understand that if there, if there is no Earth, if if the planet is not hospitable to life, then all these other questions are just luxuries. Yes, right? and all the other they questions disappear. are luxuries. But there yeah. is a sense that. The question of environment feels, why does it feel so luxurious? I guess, because yeah. I understand that, you see what I mean? Like, it, it's a thing that emotionally registers the opposite of what the reality is. Because I think we are still, by and large, colonized by this idea that, in fact, we can manage the planet. And these other things are just kind of inconveniences. And maybe there's a sense that the problem, the, the consequence is so far off yeah. that we'll just kick it down the road a few generations. But I feel like that problem is now. Well, that, that's, yeah, increasingly. But that goes back to this sense of how difficult it is for, for humans who have this legacy hardware that isn't really great at picking out slow background changes, you know, so, oh, wait, there's something moving over here. Something's on Facebook, you know, or whatever, right? I mean, not even on Facebook. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, the, 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 the reality is, even if we were especially adept at, at being luxurious in our interpersonal relationships, it would still be hard for us to take seriously Things that can only be seen through mathematical modeling that are unfolding over long periods of time. Yet you managed to create urgency with this novel. Now, I'm going to ask you, speaking of things that unfold slowly, you said this novel took you five and a half years to write. Can you tell us a little bit about the process by which you write a novel? Like, I know at one point you were using voice recognition (laughs) software. Yeah, yeah. Do you still do it? I still into that? I didn't for this book. Why not? Because there were nine different people and because there were so many narrative modes, you know, as you move through this book from the, from the root section to the trunk section to the branches section, the mix of dramatization to narration, the mix of, uh, you know, close focalization to more distant focalization, changing all the time. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't hear it out loud. So how did you do it? Did you, did you write it? Did you... Yeah, actually, a, a fair, a, I mean, it's just trading one kind of technological luxury for another, but I, I actually did a fair amount of it longhand onto a touchscreen and had it converted into text. And that, there's something about that tactile, that's a very 19th century thing. Well, you, you aren't, I mean, you're not state-of-the-art either, right? I use typewriters. <laughs> Which, I mean, to me, a typewriter is harder than longhand. I mean, because, you know, once I do the longhand, I've got my revisable draft right there. Yeah, but the typewriter makes so much noise. You feel like you're getting something done. It's so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And a little ding every time you yes, get to the, the end Yes, at the end of every line, a right. little reward. Ding, and you dramatically slap it back. I love it. I'm all about the typewriter. I should get you one. You want one? <laughs> 
I should get him one for his birthday. I want birthday, you stationary. That's what I want. Yeah. Now, here's something. So you wrote this novel over five years. When you turned it, when you submitted it, did you have any idea the impact the book was going to have? I, I knew something, and it, it's hard to answer the question because it sounds sounds fulsome, but or or foolish. But that topic exalted me. I just loved living there. And, and it was so, it, it, it changed me so profoundly. I mean, you mentioned um, where I live now. I mean, f- uh, two years into the research of the book, I kept, you know, this stunning figure that, that there's almost no old growth left. That to see what a forest looked like, you have to travel to f- fairly obscure places that only 2% of the uncut forests still existed. And... I kept reading that if you want to see what an eastern broadleaf deciduous old growth looked like, you had to go to the Smokies because it's one of the largest contiguous extant original forests left. And four years ago, I just went on a research mission and I just said, I'm going to go have a look. And walking up the side of those mountains in southern Appalachia from the regrowth forest into the old growth forest. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't even know a quarter of what I knew now, but you don't have to. And when you pass from what's grown back in a century to what was there as it was 10,000 years ago, everything changes. It looks different, it sounds different, it smells different, the species count goes way up. You know, they're, they're, the, the quality of the light, you know, the the variability of the sizes of the trees, you know, seeing these, these tulip poplars that were 27 feet in circumference, I just couldn't get enough of it, you know. And, I, and for the first time, I thought, you know what? We're not a happy people. Hmm. And what do you mean? I, you know, and I, I, I left there and worked this out over the period of eight or nine or ten months. The reason that we're writing all these stories about how hard it is to find happiness and meaning is because we've been told through our arts and through our society and through our economy that meaning is a privately made, subjective, individual, human exceptionalist, commodity-mediated thing. How rewarding can that be? How many stories can you tell to make that seem palatable? And I'm thinking, you know, we used to know something else. We used to know that meaning was out there and that you can't tell the story of us without telling the story of the place. You know, and, and you're a novelist of place. I mean, it's, they're, they're often socially constructed places and urban places and so forth. But you know you can't understand your characters without understanding where they are. Right, and I'm sitting there suddenly saying, you know, we're we're it would be like writing about an animal, you know, writing about a tiger or a lion by going to the zoo and seeing them in their cages. We, we've made a cage for ourselves that you know we we've talked ourselves into thinking that we're the only game in town, we're the only interesting thing that there is, and 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 that's warped us and. It, Nine or ten months after this excursion, thinking I had a little glimpse of what it would mean to belong to a place, to actually think of myself as part of a situation that was mostly not me. 
Since I was still thinking of it 10 months later, I thought, that's got to tell me something. I went back and bought a house, and I've been living there ever since, the last three years. The book's out. I've been on the road for a year. I don't see myself moving out anytime soon. You know, I, I think of you often there because I do feel like you're having just many more kind of close encounters with... Bears? Yeah, there were bears. She, she only lives four hours away now, and she's promised many times to come, but she doesn't like this four-foot thing. I'm an urban person. <laughs> I, I live in the city of Atlanta. But, like, even though when you were explaining the phenomenon of the eclipse out there, yeah. I mean, I was in New York City when the eclipse happened, and I was, like, looking at it through my kitchen colander. You know, I saw, like, on NPR <laughs> that you could see the eclipse with your colander. I was... <laughs> And when he told me about what he saw, I realized that I did not see an eclipse. I saw a kitchen collar. Could you you tell them just a little bit about your moment with the eclipse, please? (laughs) So (laughs) it passed it passed over my deck and where where I live, you know, I I don't have a, a lot of property. But it's contiguous with the park, with the, with the largest terrestrial park in the U.S., 800 square miles of, of forest in my backyard. So I look out and I see, I see it as if my house goes right into it. And the, the eeriness of the experience had something to do with the quality of light and something to do with the air, the quality of the air, as urban people would have reported, but it had a lot to do with the quality of the sound and the, the, the sense and the anxiety in the woods around me. They didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, and I could hear that. And, there's, and, and then, you know, after, after full, you know, um, in those first few seconds, there was an eerie silence in the middle of the day. It, that, that was, to, to me, that was being out there where this is, has happened so many times, you know, and, the, and the, the, the lifespan of a creature and the lifespan of a tree and the lifespan of this astronomical event intersected in the weirdest way. And, and I was there in the middle of that moment and, and hearing the bewilderment, which is a beautiful word if you think about it etymologically, mm-hmm. right? The, the rewilding of this moment. Yeah. What do you suggest, what, like what with the overstory, and so many people have read it, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have read it, what we all still, you know, we live our urban lives, we live our, our you say you were tree blind, yeah. and now you're not. I feel like everyone who's read this book is no longer tree blind. But, it's like an amazing grace, isn't it? But was, what next? I was blind and now I can see. Yes, uh, we were lost, now we're found, but now what? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> And as, as you know, too, I mean, it, the, the question is complicated just by the anxiety of following up something that, that had an attention that the rest of our body of work hasn't had. And I could ask you that same question, too. Do you, do you really think that there was something qualitatively different about this one over your previous books? And there is and there isn't. I mean, I, I knew when I read your galley. But I, I thought that on the previous galley, too. And there's something simply about being in the right place at the right time and things coming together for you. But once they do come together, that, now the question is, okay, what have you done lately? And how do you, how do you follow up on that? 
And for me, it's complicated because now I'm really committed to this idea that literary fiction, it can't be just a one-off. Oh, you remember 20 years ago that book about trees. It, you know, it, I, I want to see it now as part of something, you know, part of a moment where literary fiction says, yes, the non-humans are, are any story that we tell about ourselves. They need to be in there, as, as we knew always, as all myth and legend knew. Right. How do you continue? In, in a way, I feel like I got lucky. Like I, I created characters who were quirky or eccentric or vivid enough to seduce the, the reader who only wants the human deep enough into the book for them to have happen what happened to my humans, which is this realization of, you know, we're not here alone. But how do you do it again without actually repeating that same formula? And I'm, I'm at work on it, but it's not trivial. I, well, I have another question. You know, you're saying about this tree blindness. I like the term. In, in the overstory, there are so many family sagas, and so many people have had um, familial relationship with trees, yeah. trees that have been with families for generations. And in the overstory, the characters are aware that this was my grandfather's tree, my father's tree. But when I read it, I realized, that, like as, as, you, as I said before, I'm from Atlanta, and Atlanta is a city with a lot of trees. Mm. But all my life, there was a hickory tree in my yard. Was and it a mockernut or a pignut? Or, <laughs> it was very tall. It was really tall. And it had branches and leaves and things. <laughs> but I knew it was a hickory tree. I knew what kind of tree it was. But it, it was always there throughout my childhood. And I, I knew it. And my dad built like a little um, bench, little round bench around it. Noah. And when I read the overstory, I thought, oh, that bench was kind of my, the tree that was a gift to my family. Mm-hmm. Although we don't live, live in that house anymore. Someone else lives there. I hope the tree is still there. But I was wondering if, as you were writing this, even though you had been up to that point tree blind, did you look back and realize that maybe you had a relationship yeah. with trees that you didn't know yeah. you had? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one similar to the one that you describe. I, I think it's hard to be on this human, uh, you know, to be a human on this earth without, without having some moment like that. And, and I wrote that into the story of Adam and his relationship to the maple in his backyard and the trees that were planted for each child and the, the sort of uh, horrific correspondence that happens between the trees and the kids. So that became fodder for the book as well. But I'll tell you one of the most satisfying things about the book is the number of people who just, after reading it, want to say, you reminded me of something I haven't thought about for 40 years or 50 years, this thing that was important to me. And, you know, I think when we, when we're, when we start out, all of us are, are naturalists. You know, every kid is a little scientist. And then we lose it. And, and in a sense, you can say thing, the same thing about this historical process that we were talking about at large. Humans on this earth, you know, there was a time when it was essential for us to be natural scientists, to understand the rhythms and the limitation. You know, as Thoreau says, you know, in this beautiful phrase, he says, uh, 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 drink, uh, drink, breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruit, live in each season as it passes, Resign yourself to the influence of the earth. When we were young, we knew that. 
When we were young as a culture, as a, as a species, we knew that. When we were young as individuals, we knew that. So now the question is, how do we get it back? We have five more minutes, so I'm going to ask you two questions because I feel that anyone who reads the overstory makes you want to do two things. It makes you, one, want to do something to help preserve the planet. So I want to know what you think everyday people can do. But it also makes you want to write a book. So what advice do you have on those two issues? Oh, that's lovely. Um, Well, let me start with the second. I haven't... I do get that question as you do, you know, over the course of your career. You know, people of all experience levels in all ages actually want want to know. And I, you know, you could do better than the Joseph Campbell "Follow Your Bliss." I mean, I feel like I really came into something on this one, number twelve, because I gave myself entirely to the to the nerdy delights of complete immersion in the thing that gave me daily joy. And you can build your story around that. And it can still be a sad story and a heart-rending story. But you have to want to live in that world day after day for five years you know, to make it happen. Do you write every day? Not anymore. You know, back in the day, I used to, you know, if I didn't get my thousand words, I'm going to forget how to do this. I'm not a real writer, you know. When I go back, it's not going to be there anymore. And now it's like, if I don't get my four and a half miles in, you know, under those, under those woods. Of course, what's nice about walking is you get about a mile and a half in, and, and it's like, i got to go back because i got like 15 things I have to write down. So, so it's not like that's going away. I just have a different relationship to the compulsion and where it starts and, and how to make it happen. So that's uh, the advice on, on writing a book, you know. And I guess you could, you know, even if you were going to write a book much more clearly in that tradition of 100% psychological or even venturing into the sociopolitical, you know, love your characters the way you love yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're not going to do it, your, your audience isn't going to do it. And you're not going to want to work every day, right? Um, what can we do... At, at this dire moment. Yes. And, and, you know, a lot of people read the book and say, I don't know whether to be hopeful or destroyed by this. I mean, you, you, you people went out there, and then they went over the line, and they put everything they had, and it went catastrophically wrong. And they paid a big price for it. And then years later, you know, they, they, they had to, to, to look back and, and say, you know, was this just a catastrophic wrong turn? And, it, you know, there, there's some value in not resolving that morally for every reader. But to me, whatever this question of efficacy, I mean, I don't think we're going to get out of this what we've done by making small negotiations within the basic sense of individualist, capitalist, human exceptional. You know, small negotiations aren't going to do it. There has to be a change in the way that we look at everything that's not us. And what I tell my readers is, look, if you're telling me that you're walking down that street in Brooklyn, that you've walked down the last 12 or 14 or 15 years... And, and you're excitedly reporting to me that there's something halfway down there that's doing an amazing thing that you didn't see for a dozen years. I'm saying you, the revolution, revolution's already started, you know. And, and there will be a trigger point 
when sufficient number of people say it's not just about us, that things that that it will it won't seem like a sacrifice. It won't will seem. Will it happen in time? Well, that I can't. Time for who? See, here, here's an interesting question. I'll just, and that's a good send-off. I mean, here we are, 100, 200,000 years into this experiment, and the future's looking a little dicey, right? Those guys have been around for 400 million years, and they've lived through many mass extinctions. All I can say is, you know, we're not going through the way we are now. If we want to stick around for a long time, we got to make friends with them. We got to figure out what they're doing. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives presents similar programs by national and international writers poets, and social activists at www.lannon.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. <laughs>